Hello! Welcome to the Healthy Habits Happy Home Podcast, hosted by the Guelph Family Health Study. If you're interested in the most recent research and helpful tips for healthy, balanced living for you and your family, then this podcast is for you. In each episode, we will bring you topics that are important to your growing family and guests who will share their expertise and experience with you. Our quick tips will help your family build healthy habits for a happy home. Welcome back to the Healthy Habits Happy Homes podcast. I'm Tamara. And I'm Marcy Ann. And today we're excited to have Olivia Brooks join us. Olivia is a registered dietitian and certified fitness instructor. She completed two undergraduate degrees in science and her master's of science in food and nutrition at the University of Western Ontario. She currently works as a community-based dietitian and has a focus in the areas of pediatric and family nutrition, sports nutrition, and disordered eating and eating disorders. In her spare time, Olivia loves to be active and grew up playing a variety of sports, her favorites being basketball and soccer. Thanks so much for being here today, Olivia. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. Well, to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your current role, and how your education and experiences led you to where you are now? Yeah, of course. So like Tamara already mentioned, my name is Olivia Brooks, or still Olivia McAllister to a lot of my family and friends who knew me pre-married days. I'm currently working as a community-based registered dietitian. I spent 11 years post-secondary at Western, again, doing those two undergraduate degrees and my master's. My undergraduate degrees were a Bachelor of Science and a Bachelor of Science in Food and Nutrition, and my master's is a Master's of Science in Food and Nutrition. During my undergrad and graduate student careers, I volunteered and worked for a wide variety of programs and places, including children's centers and schools, long-term care homes, private practice, all with that underlying focus in healthcare while I tried to figure out you know, my postgraduate life. I always knew I wanted to be in a profession that gave back to others, and while I definitely did not take the most direct route to becoming a dietitian, hence the 11 years post-secondary, I definitely have no regrets um, in taking my time to figure out where I wanted to end up in healthcare. Fun fact, you can also find me on Instagram under the handle Pocketful of Health if you uh, enjoy what you hear today and want to you know, stay involved and in touch with uh, food and nutrition on social media. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing about yourself. We're really excited to have this conversation with you. You have such a wealth of knowledge and experience, it sounds like already, that we're really excited to delve into. Thank you. I, uh, I'm very excited to share what I know with, uh, with the public. Well, the first question I have for you is food plays a role in family life and fostering a healthy relationship with it can be a challenge. Can you explain why establishing a positive relationship with food is particularly important for families with children? Yeah, of course. That's an excellent question. So as we probably know from our own childhood, childhood experiences can create these sorts of core memories, beliefs and values that we carry into our adulthood. And through research, we've really learned that how we talk not only about food and nutrition, but also our bodies around little ears or our tiny humans can have a really long lasting impact on their own relationship with those things. Yeah, definitely. We actually were talking about kind of core memories on our previous podcast episode about school lunches. Marciana and I were sharing about how we like so remember just like eating lunch like in the cafeteria or on the gym floor in my case and just like having those early experiences when we were younger. 
they're like these core memories that are formed. So it's super important to kind of think back to how those things actually do influence a child as they get older, especially the way that we talk about our bodies and things related to food as well. And of course, parents want the best for their children. So how can families strike a balance between providing nutritious options and allowing their children to develop a healthy autonomy and connection with the food that they eat? Of course, you know, we're always, you know, trying to do the best and learn the most and figure out, you know, what can we do? So one of my honestly top tips or one of the most important things I think parents can do is to disconnect the language of good and bad from food. So absolutely, there are foods that are objectively more nutritious than others, but this doesn't necessarily make them, quote, good foods. So goodness and badness are inherently linked to morality, and the food choices we make have really nothing to do with our morals or who we are as people. So someone isn't a bad person because they chose to have, say, pizza and fries for dinner, and someone isn't necessarily a good person because they had a salad with grilled chicken. We know nothing about these people based on the food choices that they, you know, make in one moment. So that's one of my, you know, favorite (laughs) tips for parents and just, you know, any adult in general. Other things I try to do is I'll encourage parents to focus on a concept that I like to refer to as nutrition by addition. So what this means is we want to focus on adding, you know, a variety of some of those more objectively nutritious foods like fruits, vegetables, meats, whole grains, alongside, so with, it doesn't have to be separate from those more, you know, fun or play foods. I'll also suggest that parents encourage children to reflect on their hunger and fullness by helping them get in tune with those physiological hunger and fullness cues. So if you're kind of wondering how to do this, you can do just like honestly a quick Google search for hunger and fullness scale for kids. And it gives you, it can give you like a nice depiction of this concept. So one that I've found recently is like a pea pod. So on one end, there's a one and the one is to describe when someone's very, very hungry. And the 10 is like, I'm super stuffed. So this hunger and fullness scale was developed by experts in the intuitive eating field. Honestly, something else that I'll do on the flip side is also suggest that parents try to avoid adding pressure at meal and snack times and try really hard to not use food as a reward or even a punishment. So pressure at meal times is often met with resistance from the kiddos and encouraging that extra two bites or to be in the quote clean plate club can potentially result in children eating beyond their fullness, which is something that, you know, we've probably experienced and know that it isn't super comfortable. And then food being used as a reward or a punishment can put certain foods into ranked categories. So thinking back to that, like good versus bad, and that's an idea we don't really want to nourish for the long run. Parents can also take a bit of time to reflect on their own nutrition beliefs and messages that they grew up with. And recognize whether these messages have helped or hindered with their own relationship with food and their bodies. And if they are projecting any of these, you know, less helpful beliefs onto their kiddos. Thank you so much. That was really insightful and you shared a lot of helpful tips. I feel like something that really resonated with me was, you know, 
the language that can sometimes be used around food, like good and bad foods, and just even the reminder that food doesn't really have anything to do with morality. And I think growing up, those are some of the things that I had to unlearn. You speaking on that, I think, was very helpful. And even the nutrition by addition is really cool. There's so much that we can add to our plates, you know, like you can have the pizza and then maybe add some veggies, things like that. That just really resonated with me. And I think, you know, of course, for for parents, there has to be a lot of grace there. I feel like it it might not be on purpose as certain messages are portrayed, but definitely it is helpful to kind of move away from, from that kind of language just from a daughter's perspective, because it is something that needed to be unlearned. And now with it being unlearned, I've had a very better relationship with food and being focused on it nourishing versus good or bad. Definitely. Yeah, I agree, Marcian, too. Like that language of good and bad, I feel like so often in nutrition, like everything is kind of seen as like black and white. So it's either good or it's bad. And like trying to kind of work towards disconnecting food and that morality piece, like Olivia was talking about, is so important. So I'm just wondering to Olivia, if there's any like recommendations or tips you have on how to start that process of disconnecting that language of good and bad around kids and in general? Yeah, that's such a good question. Honestly, just getting started with it. So, you know, if it's already language that you've been using, try to start correcting yourself if you can. So if you, you know, recognize, oh, I normally call, you know, our carrots and peas good foods and we, you know, are normally calling our pizza and chips bad foods, you know, recognize and correct that language right in front of them to help them see and kind of unlearn that we don't have to use those words. You can, you know, depending on the age of the child, explain why you're making the transition. Um, if you think it's something that they'll understand, just dive right into it. Honestly, recognize that this is something that you probably learned and grew up with and that's okay. You know, we're always learning and adapting. Just get started with catch yourself and, and make the correction. So you can use, you know, words like nourishing, play foods, those kinds of words are a little bit more useful and and not linked to morality as much as, you know, good versus bad. Yeah, that's a really great tip too. And even what you were saying earlier too, about just like reflecting on your own like nutrition beliefs and the messages and stuff like that. And I think like sitting down too, like that's probably a big part of it is like sitting down and actually thinking like, am I projecting these beliefs that, you know, I may have heard as a child and things like that. And like you said, nobody's perfect, right? Like we all have things that we heard as children that have like impacted us and to see if we carry it forward. But it's a good place to start is in that reflection and then just uh, stopping it in its tracks almost if you do notice yourself saying those types of things and tying food to morality. And like you mentioned too, there are so many other adjectives that can that we can use like nourishing, you know, like energy giving, even if it's about a certain food too, like carrots, um, especially with the younger kiddos, you can be like, oh, it's great for our vision. And like, it helps us see well and things like that too. So that's really helpful. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. I'm glad you enjoyed that tip. <laughs> Definitely. And there's so many outside influences as well that can impact like our, our nutrition or food beliefs. And children are often exposed to various influences that shape their perception of food from media to peers. What strategies can parents employ to create an environment at home that promotes mindful eating and minimizes the impact of external pressures? Well, that's such a tough one. 
you know, you send, send the kids out into the world hoping for the best. But of course, you know, we can't erase everything that's being shared with our children outside the home. But a few things you can do. One is honestly encouraging your children to ask questions about food and nutrition and meet these questions with listening, empathetic, and really non-judgmental ears, making sure they, you know, feel like they're in a safe place to bring these things up. You know, you wouldn't want to go talk to somebody who is going to judge you. So you can be that source of non-judgment for your kids. And honestly, if they start asking you questions, you know, about nutrition that you you don't have answers to, that's okay. That's where, you know, dietitians, the nutrition experts can be really helpful resources as well. Parents can also practice some of the tips that I previously offered. So not using food as a reward. You might be thinking, you know, what can I use instead? You can use non-food based things if you would like. So Maybe there's a sticker chart that they add to. Maybe it's five extra minutes of playtime. Just trying not to, again, put foods on pedestals as rewards. Um, We can help children learn about their own hunger and fullness cues. And another thing parents can try to do is practice something called the division of responsibility. So the division of responsibility, or DOR, was actually developed by a dietitian named Ellen Satter, and it encourages both parents and children to be involved in the feeding process. So for more details, definitely go check out Ellen Satter Institute online. She's got tons of information and resources on there. But basically, in short, parents can decide what food is available and when it's available, and children can decide how much of that food they're going to eat at that meal or snack. So this might not be the perfect strategy for all children, but it can be a really great starting point to help create some structure and autonomy for the kids. Thank you so much, Olivia. That was really helpful. Like you brought up some really helpful tips. I have been hearing often from some parents recently about food and as a reward and wanting to kind of unlearn that, especially when it's something that even if it's not practiced in the home, it can be seen a lot outside. You know, if certain classes do well, there's a pizza party or if you win a game, you go for ice cream, things like that, which isn't inherently, you know, bad, but food as a reward can sometimes be something that is seen often in and out of the home. So do you have any practical tips about how to move away from that and then learn some of those practices and use those other rewards that you mentioned? Thanks, Marcia. That was a great question. Um, And, you know, it, it is really hard to control everything outside the home. So I suggest just doing your best to use non-food based rewards when you are at home and when you're also at home maintaining that, you know, food neutrality and offering all types of foods, both nourishing and play that kids will, you know, by doing this, children will feel like, you know, there's a little bit more control when they're offered the play foods in alternative settings. So sometimes the fear is when they're offered ice cream for a reward for winning their soccer game that they're going to want to have, you know, 25 scoops and just eat the whole thing as fast as they can. If it's a food that's offered often and treated neutrally, it's not as exciting or as thrilling. There also is some emerging research to support using non-food items as rewards, which is also starting to influence policies in Canada. So maybe we'll eventually get to the point where 
we aren't using ice cream as a reward or using pizza as a reward. The other thing you can do as well is just keep that communication open with the kids. And if you feel comfortable, you could always chat with the school or with your child's teacher about alternative reward options. So maybe instead of the pizza party, it's a sprinkler party and they set up some sprinklers on the school grounds and they can run through them. Or if that's a little bit too much of a mess, maybe it's you know, uh, an extra game of kickball or something like that, things that just aren't tied to to food. You can provide some of those alternative option ideas if that's something you're comfortable with too. But again, just remember, it's okay if you can't control everything outside of the home. That would be a big ask of us. (laughs) Yeah, that's so true. I mean, the reality is, is we can't control what goes on outside of the home. And, you know, part of raising independent kids, you know, with autonomy is, is, kind of them going through these experiences too and seeing how things are and being able to encounter those situations and, and deal with them, right? And especially um, the point you made too about how like having some of those foods regularly, like those fun or play foods, it really just like almost takes away a bit of that power. It's it's not as big of a thriller. It's not as important. It takes away some of that power, which unfortunately I think uh, because food has been used as a reward so much a lot of these foods have and not just over children too right over adults as well so a lot of a lot of really good things to think about there and to maybe think about how they influence our our eating and our and our behaviors with that being said too family meals are a time for bonding and connection so how can parents make these shared meals enjoyable experiences that encourage open conversations about food and preferences of course so like we've talked about honestly already keeping that open communication, safe communication is really important. So continuing to verbally express to the kiddos that they are allowed to ask about food and food preferences, you can encourage them to be part of the preparation, shopping, cooking experience, ask them to help decide, you know, what goes on the menu for the week, include all their favorite foods regularly. And when time allows for it, try to take them to the grocery store to show them food and show them more food options that are available. If you're working to try to expand the palate of one or more of your children, you can encourage them to explore the sensations of the food as well versus the one bite and I'll give you, you know, ice cream, two bites and you can have, you know, a pizza party trying to avoid that but rather doing that sensation exploration. So what does this food look like? Does it look like anything else you recognize? What does it smell like? What does it feel like? If you touch it with your fingers, is it, does it feel crunchy? Um, does it feel smooth? What does this food smell like? Can you try to describe that to me? And making sure that you offer these less familiar food items more than once. It can actually take 15 to 20 tries for a child to accept a new food. And if you're finding that the topic of food becomes stressful, at dinner time, the the meal is getting stressful because maybe someone isn't eating or someone's in a really grumpy mood, try to keep the conversation away from food or the meal itself. So ask family members how their day was, ask them what they're looking forward to, maybe their favorite sport, their favorite movie, their favorite artist. For younger children, you could ask, you know, what's their favorite color or animal, what they want to be when they grow up, or everyone in the room can start, you know, sharing their favorite jokes, but just really setting up that nice, you know, mealtime, relaxed conversation can be a really great way to keep the mealtime relaxed and, and enjoyable for everybody at the table, knowing that you're not headed into a really stressful conversation. 
Wow, those are really helpful tips. It's just so crazy. We mentioned this in the last episode about just how food is so central to so many things. You can start practicing those safe spaces and open communication around these topics. And then it just spills into other, you know, topics that parent and children can have together. I especially loved what you talked about, like, talking through and having the child like enjoy the sensations of the food that is so cool like just taking that time to be more mindful and you know enjoy the food it makes me think about I actually had this experience with a family member like trying watermelon (laughs) for the one of the first times when I was younger I just remember us like being outside and really like taking in that cool refreshing fruit and it became like one of my favorite fruits growing up but just taking that time to to really enjoy it in a different way really stuck and it's really cool I just I thought that was really interesting I never really thought about that till you say it and it brought back a core memory so (laughs) thank you for all of those tips you're welcome I love that we've circled back to core memories it's so funny how something you know that seems so seemingly simple can be so valuable and so leave such a lasting impression on somebody. Yeah, that's so true. It is all about the the core memories. But even what you were talking about too, like at the dinner table, there are so many other things to talk about other than food. Like we don't have to have that like pressure of like staring at everyone's plates and paying attention to who's eating what and how much of it and stuff like that. Like there are so many other conversations that can be had when we're sitting down together. Um, so I just thought that was really cool that you um, made a point to include that as well. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, something that has been released recently, sort of recently in 2019, when the new food guide came out, was just that mealtime and and family meals are really important to helping develop that, you know, healthy, strong relationship with food too. Eating family meals can help us become more mindful eaters as well. We're working on, you know, slowing down eating rather than just plowing through the meal as quick as we can to get on to the next thing that family meal time can be really valuable for a lot of reasons yeah that's so true it is just like it's so much more than than food at the end of the day like that connection and that helps nurture too like emotional development and all of that as well so it's just really important to think about it beyond beyond the food too sometimes exactly there's so much more to gain from you know eating than just the food (laughs) Mm, definitely Exactly. I'm loving this conversation. Um, But another aspect, I feel like, you know, something when we're speaking about these topics, I feel like we can't have this conversation without speaking about body image. And so body image concerns can arise at a young age due to societal influences. What can parents do to foster a positive body image in their children? Ah, yes, this is probably the million dollar question of the podcast today. Honestly, one of the best things that parents can do, and it can feel really challenging at times, I absolutely recognize that, is set the example. So really avoiding diet talk or speaking negatively about your body or anyone's body for that matter around children. So remember that those little ears work very well and can pick up on things you might not even realize that they're listening to. So just really keep that negative conversation around bodies, dieting away from the household. Celebrate what bodies can do instead. So our eyes help us see, our legs help us walk. So just, you know, honing in on on what bodies can do and, and celebrating that 
that accomplishment that they're able to provide for us. And then encourage them to stay off social media until they can better understand that there is such a wide, wide variety of messages that are coming on those platforms. If they're already on social media, take, you know, 15, 20 minutes to go through their feed and try to filter out, you know, messages that are less helpful, maybe more harmful, but as best you can try to keep them off the social media when you can. I know that might be impossible for a teenager, but, you know, do a little refresher of their page when you can. Again, keeping that open, honest conversation, knowing that they're in a safe place with you. Just really try to be the example at home. It's okay if, you know, you are struggling, you have your own struggles. That's that's okay. That's totally normal, totally allowed, but just be careful where you talk about those struggles so that those little ears aren't picking up on it. That is all so true body image is like something I think very personal to everyone but uh, knowing in my life it's something I've had to go through a lot of like healing for and I think just setting the example is so important the part that you talked about celebrating what bodies can do is so powerful because our bodies can do so much and do so much at any size, you know, like working in the clinical setting and learning about like anatomy and physiology. It's just so crazy how like we're alive and all the things our bodies can do and being able to celebrate that instead of being so focused on size is something that was very healing to me and something I wish I had more of growing up. I feel like, you know, it, it could have just done so much wonders for, for kids to do to grow up hearing those messages um, and social media as well. I'm glad that social media was out when I was a little older because I can't imagine now growing up when you have like TikTok in your hands as a child <laughs> and there's a lot of messages out there that are very negative around body image, comparing your bodies to others, things like that. And so I think, you know, just being careful about what kids are exposed to is so, so important because you're right. Their little ears are hearing so much. Their little eyes are observing so much. They're they're learning about not only their bodies and what it can do, but how to think about their body. And so modeling positivity around that topic is so, so important because, you know, as you get older, people always talk about how like if you don't kind of address something it doesn't really go away so it would be best to just start off with positive messaging about the about their body so that when they get older they don't have to like heal from that so just thank you for those those tips and it it to me makes me really want to take seriously when I have my own kids to set the example and really be careful about the language I'm using around them. You're so welcome. I'm so glad that message resonated with you. And I know it's something really hard that takes un- unlearning like we've talked about before, but it is possible and we can help set a new precedent for these next generations. Definitely. Yeah, that's so true. There is there is definitely a lot to be said too about like exposure and comparison, especially with social media, because it's just so easily accessible these days. So it's just really important to kind of take those steps um, that you, you talked about to, you know, if they're on social media already, going through those feeds, filtering out things that are not helpful, and just really thinking about all the different messages that are out there and how helpful they are for kids or teenagers even to be seeing and if they need to be interacting with that type of content, because it certainly can influence 
people for a long time, right? And those kinds of things stick with us. So it's really important to be very intentional and reflective about all of those things. So to close out the podcast, we like to give families three take-home tips. So what are three take-home tips that you can share with our listeners to help support them with healthy relationships with food? Yes, I love a good takeaway message. You know, what is the what is the main purpose of all of this? So number one, keep language around food neutral. So our morality is never linked to our food choices. What goes into the decision somebody makes about food is so multifaceted and no one deserves to be judged for a snapshot in time. So neutral food language. Number two is to be the example for your children. So try new foods with them. Talk about bodies in a positive light. Celebrate the little things bodies can do for us every day and be a listening ear for their questions or concerns. You can be their safe place. And finally, have the children and kiddos be an active participant in the food experience from the prepping and shopping to the cooking and the eating. This can help them feel like they have a sense of responsibility. I love that. Thank you so much for all of those tips. And even just reiterating, that is so true. You can't judge someone on on a snapshot of their life. You have no idea what they're going through or even the successes that that they've had, you know, and so it's it's very hard to just look at someone and be like, they're healthy or they're unhealthy. We don't know. So thank you so much for all of those tips and really excited to just continue to ponder on this conversation. You're so welcome. You know, what can be could be considered healthy for one person might be, you know, less healthy for another person. But we don't know that just by looking at the food itself. We don't know the whole story behind that. So we want to try to keep it neutral and judgment-free. Thank you, Olivia, for sharing your expertise on nurturing healthy relationships with food within families. Your insights will undoubtedly resonate with our listeners and provide them with practical guidance to create a positive environment for their children. Thank you guys so much for having me on. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you guys and I I can't wait to hear this all come together. And remember, if you want to keep up to date with Olivia, follow her on Instagram at pocketfullofhealth. And to our audience, please remember that building healthy relationships with food is an ongoing journey that fosters not just physical well-being, but emotional connection as well. And stay tuned for our next episode. Mm -hmm.